0: Welcome to the Propaganda Report. This is Monica Perez with my co host Brad Binkley, and a guest that I can say I think we're the first people to have this guest on today. It is Dr. James Hill. He, one of my patrons, turned me on to his work on Substack, and it is just page after page after page of hard hitting evidence about what's going on in the world today, about the pandemic and beyond. Um, from a perspective of somebody who has some expertise and is honestly expressing his opinions on this, and that in itself makes him unique. So I would love it. Dr. Hill, hello, if you would give us a little bit about your background.
1: Hi, Monica, Brad. Thanks for having me on. So my background is that I'm a physician and attorney. I uh, went an undergrad biology major and went to University of Southern California for medical school. I did internal medicine residency training at uh, Huntington Hospital in Pasadena and then went to uh, Mass General Hospital in Boston and Harvard Medical School for radiology training. Later, uh, I practiced medicine and and then went to law school and uh, became a patent lawyer. And I've been a patent uh, attorney and partner in several firms for the last more than 20 years. I'm currently a partner in a law firm and um, still working as a patent attorney. Um, I have currently moved away from full-time patient care and am doing medical research. I am a co-founder of a medical device startup and inc- uh, pardon me, a venture fund, and incubator called Adventist Ventures and a co-founder of uh, two oncology companies, one of which was acquired by Hillstream Biopharma and it's working on uh, selenomycin nanoparticles for killing cancer stem cells. And they just, I think they're in the process of doing an IPO on that, a small one, but at least they're moving the project forward and it's, it's pretty encouraging. Another oncology startup that I'm working on with a physician in Florida, Mark Rosenberg, that focuses on uh, removing cancer stem cells and, and clusters, circulating clusters of stem cells and other cancer circulating. That's the
0: stuff that gets lodged in your liver, right? That's when you go stage four is when that stuff kind of floats around in your blood and gets a foothold Yes, it it can can.
1: get lodged in various organs. That's right. And it's thought that the clusters are most um, highly metastatic, possibly just due to a clogging mechanism, but also due to their kind of focused release of mediators that penetrate tissues and so forth. So, and then that, I also have an ophthalmology company that I'm starting. And I've been working on that for a couple of years, uh, which is uh, to change eye color. And we're doing that in rabbits with the <laughs> gene therapy. That's a that little actually,
0: controversial.
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You we can talk about that. Yeah, yeah. Because that actually uses a virus and Oh my gosh. That, okay. Yeah. So we can talk about that.
0: Yeah. So I want to talk about, I'm going to pick your brain on cancer and viral theory, like these are things that I feel like industries are built around them and therefore people who are engaged in them aren't always totally open eyed about the truth or avenues to go down. But first I want to ask you, so you have obviously uh, interest in medicine, in law, in startups, Uh, you have a lot on the line. I'm sure you associate with a lot, a lot of people, the majority of whom there's no doubt in my mind, uh, just smoke the Kool-Aid, as I say, and just believe, believe the establishment, look to the FDA or the CDC as um, that presume that they have our best interests at heart and are honestly doing their best with their resources. And I don't believe that, but if you did believe that you kind of go in lockstep and then there's another whole attitude that comes with that a lot of times, especially the, what's promoted by the press that anyone who, who doesn't think that way is an idiot or has some ulterior motive or that there's, there's something just wrong with you and you shouldn't be associated with. So I feel like you're even just bringing out these scientific, Papers and evidence and truth and opinion in your Substack. I feel like it's risky for you. And I wonder if you agree that it's risky and why do you take that risk?
1: I think it is. I've been licensed to practice medicine for over 30 years continuously. Um, and um, I do worry about my medical license and my law license. However, what I attempt to do is in everything I write and I wrote a lot on Twitter for the last 13 years particularly when the pandemic started And Twitter took exceptions to that, to some of the things I wrote, and they suspended me permanently recently. And everything I wrote was backed up by peer research, or was a factual statement such as when Rochelle Walensky announced maybe six months ago, we have to only use the vaccine, and that must be our sole focus for getting out of the pandemic. I just noted that neither the government nor media ever talked about early treatment, optimizing vitamin D status, optimizing one's health. And Twitter took me down for that with a one week suspension saying, COVID misinformation, but it was absolutely factual.
0: It's true. And I know, I noticed you linked to Steve Kirsch at one point, and I think he was quite disillusioned because he tried to put his time and money from a philanthropic point of view into those early treatments and alternative treatments because of his experience with cancer, if I must understand correctly. And he was shocked, I think, from what I read about how people just weren't, they weren't interested in that. They didn't want to have alternatives and they didn't want to have early treatments.
1: That's right. He funded a trial on fluvoxamine, which is is a psychiatric drug, but it appears to be effective Mm -hmm. in COVID. And uh, he found that once the trial was successful, he couldn't get the FDA's ear on it. And I can give you a quick anecdote. I had a client, I still have the client, that was making a potentially effective therapy for COVID using aspirin. And aspirin is known to inhibit viral replication. Oh my and, gosh.
0: There was a, yeah. there was a, they all of a sudden said, don't take aspirin anymore. Even for blood thinning. I put, I totally retweeted that. They, they don't even want you to take aspirin now. And I figured it was just because of the clotting thing. Sorry, I interrupted you.
1: Oh no, that's very important. Well, so it, it, aspirin's gone through some interesting phases. It used to be recommended for stroke prophylaxis because yeah. it would help prevent platelets from aggregating and starting a clot. So you would helpfully stop TIAs, these transient ischemic attacks that, that are harbinger of stroke, and also for preventing coronary disease. There was a big trial showing that aspirin didn't help with stroke. And the reason was, even though it it could reduce thrombotic strokes, those caused by clots, because of the platelet effect in potentially increasing bleeding, it was increasing the risk of hemorrhagic stroke. So it was (laughs) no longer recommended a few years ago. They said, everybody stop taking it for stroke. You can be on some other drugs. Um, and then recently it was taken off the recommendation list for right. coronary disease for preventing MIs. And part of the reason they said was, um, and there apparently are some studies to back this up, that there was also too much of a risk of bleeding and so forth. But that, right. that was controversial because That's it came at a time when, yeah. So what happened was I actually corresponded with uh, FDA on this and they told me, uh, thank you very much. We're right now, this is about a year and a half ago. They said, right now we're in the middle of, focusing on remdesivir. So we're not entertaining any other trials right now, but we were trying to get permission from BARDA, you know, the um, agency that helps through the federal government, you to get funding for emergency conditions like COVID. And so they basically, they were very nice about it, but they just said, we're focused on remdesivir. So it does seem to be a focus, perhaps based on the largest companies with the largest funding of FDA, I mean, that's the allegation. And that's certainly what uh, people like Robert Malone and Peter McCullough think uh, is going on is one of the rationales for perhaps not looking at other therapies. But yeah, so um, with aspirin, uh, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you do have to balance, the thing about COVID is it induces autoimmunity in some cases, and it induces antibodies against what's called platelet factor four. So when you get these antibodies, you can get bleeding um, and so there's a combination. Of, you may have heard of a vaccine induced um, thrombocytosis. Yeah, definitely. Thrombos- so, oh, thrombocytopenia and thrombosis. So, you get both platelet consumption and low platelets, and you get um, clotting and so you can get both bleeding and clotting in it oh what looks like God. a DIC. It, often internal medicine physicians see this thing called DIC which is disseminated intravascular coagulation where people who have sepsis from some other Yeah, yeah, of right. will just start to bleed and clot at the same time. It's a horrible oh situation God. because you're you're replacing their platelets, you're giving them anticoagulants and it's, it's a bit of a mess.
0: But it's not always uh iatrogenic is that a, a normal word to use the iatrogenic illness where like the the treatment causes or exacerbates the illness with the same symptoms and it often gets masked because of that.
1: So DIC can result from some drugs, but it also primarily results from infections, sometimes major okay. trauma. Sometimes people get uh, severe long bone injuries and they start getting fat on the line, oh, yeah. they start going downhill and they'll yeah. get DIC as like an endpoint. And when people are in DIC, it's quite terrible. But what they did find was the vaccines could induce something very similar called VITT, which is this vaccine-induced thrombosis, cytopenia, and thrombosis. And this also is felt to be, in part, mediated by anti factor four antibodies. So aspirin, you know, I, I definitely would wait to see what the clinical trials show. Right. There was a prospect that it could be effective at a certain stage in COVID. For example, one of the things early on in COVID when patients were being ventilated, you heard a lot about this in New York where there was a lot of barotrauma, meaning when they were placed on the ventilator, their lungs were less compliant than they normally would be with the bacterial pneumonia and they were placed on high pressures and rapid volumes and they got a lot of pneumothoraces, meaning um, they would rupture their pleura and they'd get air in the pleural space and they would often die from that. So people started saying, perhaps we shouldn't be ventilating these patients, when we are, we should be doing something different. It was later found that their lungs had in their pulmonary vessels, a lot of clots. And these patients were not on anticoagulants or on antiplatelet drugs. And if they had been, that might've helped some of them not have to stay in a ventilator for so long or, or to die on that. So we now know that with COVID lung disease, especially early in the pandemic, there's um, not only just inflammation in the lungs, but there's also microclotting apparently in many of those cases, uh, along with some other phenomenon, some direct um, effects of the spike protein on pulmonary vessels.
2: Do you know anything about interstitial lung disease that's vaccine-induced?
1: I do know about interstitial lung disease. I don't know what this... It seems that you could easily get that from the vaccine, especially when there's these inflammatory effects from the spike protein on pulmonary uh, cells, you know, with these lung alveolar cells, as well as the blood vessels. Um, The interstitial lung disease normally that's idiopathic where they don't know what the cause is tends to progress toward pulmonary fibrosis and lung scarring. And you could probably see that with the vaccines. I don't know what the incidence is though. So I want to be careful not to say that, you know, one should avoid the vaccine for that reason alone. Mm -hmm. There may be other reasons, but um, yeah. I found three studies
2: that have documented it on three cases, but not none more than that officially documented. I was just curious if that was something that was, uh, you know, in the air?
1: Yeah, we're seeing a lot of sort of strange things in association with the vaccine, and the question is, is the incidence high enough to be able to attribute it to it? Um, there's also things like CJD, Kreutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which is a yeah. prion disease in the brain. There have been an increased number of reports of that after vaccination, but the current thinking is those are just not frequent enough to be able to attribute to the vaccine. Right. However, there are you know, Stephanie Senef wrote an article about a year ago talking about the prion potential of the spike protein because there are these five glycine right. zipper sequences in the spike protein, which have normally prion potential. And so, and there are some other studies that suggest- Because they're harm. fusion
0: proteins? Is that why it's
1: prion? Um, not necessarily fusion, but because right. they can induce uh, misfolding either of themselves oh, or of of proteins that come in contact with them. So a lot of the amyloidogenic diseases in the brain like Alzheimer's and like to some extent uh, Parkinson's, not quite amyloidogenic, but it's they're, they're felt to be due to misfolded proteins. I mean, not felt to be, they're shown to be for right. sure. Okay. Well, you get alpha-synuclein and Parkin misfolding in Parkinson's, you get beta amyloid and tau. Uh, beta amyloid for sure is misfolding. Tau is getting hyperphosphorylated, and both of those are leading to brain disease, especially the tau. The tau accumulation is is correlated with memory loss the most, more than so. Beta amyloid.
0: What what do you I'm gonna just ask your opinions and all the things that you've done? I understand that you read stuff you don't want to attribute one thing to if you don't have evidence for it, but in your opinion, what you know, what causes Alzheimer's? What are there are these toxins, are these natural, is there increased incidence of them? Same thing for cancer. Like, it seems like they could be attributed to toxins in the environment, but they, you know, all they ever say is we really don't know what causes these things.
1: Right. I think a person who's written on this very well is Dale Bredesen, MD from UCLA, and he's got some books on this. He has described, we used to think that beta amyloid, which accumulates in the brains of Alzheimer's patients was bad. And so there were many trials of vaccines that went through mice and got to the human stage that were targeting beta amyloid. In many cases, they were monoclonal antibodies that were trying to bind beta amyloid. And they all failed. They never worked in none of the trials so far. And part of this is because the thing that is most affecting memory appears to be the tau side, not the beta amyloid. And we now know that beta amyloid is actually a compensatory reaction to an insult in the brain. So if you have something that's hurting your brain, like diabetes, hypertension, where you're not getting enough glucose or, or you're, you know, cause there does seem to be prior to Alzheimer's, this hypometabolism that occurs in the brain for years where you're not actually getting enough uh, glucose metabolism in the brain. And this has to do perhaps with uh, what they call type three diabetes, where there's a, a local insulin resistance in the brain. Normally, the brain doesn't depend on insulin for taking up glucose, but there does seem to become um, more of a dependency on this as things go on. And the beta amyloid, and this also is true of um, metallic toxins, you know, if you have an excess exposure to mercury or some other things, you will see more beta amyloid that comes to try to protect brain cells. But once it gets to a certain point, it becomes pathogenic because it it accumulates outside cells. And it will misfold and it acts as a seeding process, kind of like a crystallization, as do all these prior diseases. One will attach to another oh my and word. Start to aggregate. Oh. And so yeah. and so is, the beta is outside the cells, but the tau is inside the cells. And both of them harm.
0: would you expect the this trend in the keto diet to promote this problem of like a type three situation, diabetic situation of? Lack of glucose uptake in the brain, or is it not really about glucose intake or glucose in the blood?
1: So it it appears, and Bradison's done work on this that if you if you're diabetic and you improve your blood sugars, either type one or type two, you can reduce uh, some of the impacts of Alzheimer's. E- either start to reverse the beta amyloid accumulation. Or more importantly, some of the tau phosphorylation. But one thing I wanted to mention to you that I've been focused on recently is the omega 6 fatty acids, linoleic acid. There's a really good paper out from a Japanese group, uh, which I can send you, and I don't have the name off the top of my head, showing that probably the biggest environmental factor that's increasing the risk of uh, insulin resistance, diabetes, obesity, Alzheimer's, possibly Parkinson's, and definitely. Um, Obesity seems to be the increase in linoleic acid, which is an omega six fatty acid, which people have always regarded as essential. Meaning, you need a little bit in the diet because your body can't make it. That was the thinking for many years. That's what I learned in medical school a long time ago. Just like you need some of the um, at least one omega three, this right. alpha linolenic acid, um, and then there's some other um, omega threes that you presumably can make, although you don't make it very well. They eat. Uh, DHA and EPA. So often it's good to get that in your diet or, or by supplement. But the omega 6s, we have way too much of. And we started getting too much. Yes, corn in, fed in industrial the, farming, right? Yes. And so there's a, a great talk on, on YouTube by Chris Kenobi, who's an ophthalmologist um, from a couple of years ago. And he's had some other updated talks where he discusses the epidemiology of this. It's kind of hard to show causation because you can't do a randomized clinical trial where you give a bunch of people omega-6 and others not. But you can look at just the, the correlation between the intake of omega-6 going up like crazy. Now it's in everything. You know, If you look at almost anything you buy, it's got soybean oil. So it's the seed oils, basically. Canola oil, sunflower oil, uh, all of these types of vegetables, oh, I think
0: it's in beef. this corn fed industrial farmed beef, too. That's what they say the difference between like the grass fed organic beef is good for you. And the,
1: that's interesting, you know, and possibly- it could be
0: muddling up the um, studies about cancer from beef and stuff like
1: well, that's very interesting. Now I've heard Paul Saladino MD, who's the carnivore MD. He's talked a lot about seed oils and getting them out of your diet. Right. But he talked about chicken having a lot of it, the beef having less. Maybe that's because he's using the grass fed, not the corn fed, but that's a great point. I mean, the chickens are somehow getting it through their feed and they're having more uh-huh. of a like acid than the linoleic acid, whereas beef has more saturated fat. And it turns out, you know, the American Heart Association recently did an about face about a year ago where they said, we no longer think that saturated fat is bad for you. We've been telling you that since the 1970s, after the Ancel Keys studies. And one of the guys who's been most influential on this is Walter Willett, who's the head of the nutrition department at Harvard School of Public Health. He's been writing for probably 40 years, and I used to read him back in medical school. That you need to replace the saturated fat in meats and cheese and and butter with unsaturated fats from seed oils. You know, the more Soybean oil, you can eat the healthier you'll be. And the the thing is, it appears that's wrong. And you wonder, why was he saying it? It appears the reason people have been pushing it is they do lower your LDL cholesterol. So, but that may not be good. right? So So it turns out, you know, after you've had a heart attack, and particularly if you're diabetic, lowering your LDL definitely improves your survival with a statin, for example. But if you haven't yet had a heart attack, Your LDL doesn't appear to help you at all in terms of coronary events or or, or, um, death. But what does make much more uh, of a difference is your triglyceride to HDL ratio. If your triglycerides are high and your HDL are low, that correlates very well, uh, a ratio above two, correlates very well with coronary disease, the the presence of it and the extent of it. People with ratios like up around five, six, seven, you do a coronary angiogram on them and they, their vessels are filled with plaque and they often are either have had a heart attack or are about to get it. So focusing on triglycerides and HDL seems to be more important than LDL. And if you go on, let's say, a carnivore diet or you're having a lot of saturated fats, but you avoid the linoleic acid, the health outcomes appear, we, we need longitudinal studies, more of them, to be pretty good, even if your LDL is high. So Walter Willett's thinking was always, well, get your LDL down low. And just because, um, you know, so you should be taking more soybean oil. But this paper I will send you from the Japanese group says that he thinks linoleic acid is the main culprit in Alzheimer's. So it's very interesting. And it has to do with oxidation. You know, the linoleic acid gets into the cell and it gets oxidized into these byproducts that do a couple of things They cause hyperphagia. When you feed linoleic acid to mice, they start eating and get very obese. And it's because one of the intermediates from oxidation of LDL or of linoleic acid is, uh, I think it's 2AG. It's something that goes into the brain and causes your hypothalamus to tell you to eat a lot. You become hyperphagic. That's one thing, and so that may account for the obesity. And then the other thing is some of the other oxidation products are are causing um, mayhem in the cell. They're uh, disrupting LDL metabolism and so forth. So. This is an accurate, active area of study, but since I learned this, I've cut out a lot of the LDL I used to eat.
0: Okay. So I want to move I into
1: LDL. pardon me, low like yeah, acid.
0: Yes. Yes. So I want to understand, do, uh, oxidation I'm under the impression has a big part in the cause of cancer also. Is that like free radical oxygen? You know, don't they say oxidants like antioxidants help pull free radical oxygen Uh, molecules, not molecules, I guess. Are they molecules, atoms? Out of your, molecules out of your system and that when there are a lot of free radical oxygen, is that not a precursor to cancer or do you know what causes
1: cancer? Do they know? Sure. So it's definitely multifactorial. You definitely have to have a change in your DNA that's gonna, you know, some sort of mutation that's going to cause, that's not gonna be repaired and it's gonna be the deleterious area encoding a protein that such that that protein won't function properly. And oxidation does play a role in disease. The problem is there was a trial of vitamin supplementation and antioxidant supplementation for many years to see if it would make a difference. And it didn't. So it looks like taking a lot of antioxidants may not help in terms of cancer incidence or survival. It's not to say that it's bad, but it's just a lot of people had this hope that taking a lot of vitamin C and vitamin E and other antioxidants would help. Um, Same thing with resveratrol, which acts as an antioxidant and and helps, uh, uh, I think it's raise levels of sirtuin 1 and 2 for anti-aging. They've shown some effects in mice, but the effects so far in humans don't look that promising. So yes, uh, their oxidation plays a role. DNA mutations play a role. For example, in skin cancer, ultraviolet light causes uh, mutations in some DNA bases which normally can be repaired by your DNA polymerases right. that are roaming around, or they could happen in an unimportant part of your DNA that codes for a part of a protein that doesn't affect its function. But if it's not repaired and it codes for an area that hurts a protein's function, that can lead to cancer. And there are, um, your immune system is also very important in keeping cancer at bay. So people mm-hmm. who are even as depressed start to see more cancers. People, for example, with HIV began to get more kaposi sarcoma and so forth due to T-cell um, suppression because your T-cells are very important in keeping cancer in check.
0: Now, if you hadn't gotten ahead of it and you actually did develop cancer, is there anything you can do right away other than or in addition to uh, just the extreme stuff that they put people through chemo and radiation, do you have any belief at all that there's any alternative to that stuff that can help in any way?
1: Well, you make a good point because chemotherapy, well, it's made great strides in certain cancers like childhood leukemias, where you can get like a 99% survival rate. For many cancers, it hasn't been very promising, some of the advanced lung cancers. That's changing with some immunotherapies. Some of these therapies where you tailor the therapy to your own T cell response to the cancer, like CAR-T, those have been uh, promising, but they've been d- done in very small uh, studies. And one of the complaints was, I think, a doctor at University of Pennsylvania who was curing some patients with very advanced cancer u- using their own T cells. And he said, I just can't get funded by the FDA to go on or the NIH to, does isn't seem to there's, there's be a lot of interest. But that was quite effective because it was, more uh, immunotherapy targeting your own cancer. In general, yeah. though, i oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: Yeah, so I'm just, in general, tell me, but but I also wonder well, why, why are the one thing preferred over another?
1: That's a great question. Um, so, I mean, you could look at it kind of cynically and say, if it's not by a major drug company, perhaps that's why FDA and NIH are less interested. I hate to think that's the case. I, I would like to think that they're most interested in helping people. that is an allegation that's been raised. Um, In general, there have been, because chemotherapy is disappointing for a lot of surgeries, and of course, if you have a a large tumor that needs debulking, then surgery is quite important. Uh, For example, if you have a uh, glioblastoma in the brain, you may need um, some surgery or some radiation to shrink it, but the problem is it's still going to keep growing. So you need something that's going to target it, um, and and it, it has these diffuse feet that go into the rest of the brain and they're very hard to eliminate. So in those cases, you need some kind of targeted immunotherapy or something that's going to kill the cells based on a cell surface marker or this thing called a gamma knife, where you can do very precise radiation. Yeah. Yeah. Those those are more effective than just a a generalized debulking by a neurosurgeon. But isn't
0: there, isn't there some, I just, I can't help but get the feeling that there is a fundamentally unhealthy thing about, um, our culture, society right now that makes us increasingly prone to these things. And, you know, maybe there's something right before our eyes that could really help that, that's, that is just isn't talked about.
2: Thank your camera's frozen up there. We might have lost Dr. Yeah, it's totally Dr. Hill. Frozen.
1: I, I'm so sorry okay. about that. My computer no just froze. CIA no
2: got us again.
1: That's
0: it. I know the, I know the exact question I was asking. So I will just re ask it and that is this. I can't help but feel that right now that there's maybe some very fundamental thing about our lifestyle that makes us vulnerable to cancer and people are just not really talking about it. Um, Or do you think, or is it totally normal in uh, people from all cultures and all times and animals too, that you just get cancer? Or is it something about maybe our environment or our lifestyle, in your opinion?
1: I think there's a heavy component from environment and lifestyle. And that's evidenced by the reports of cancer pre 1900. They were pretty infrequent as was heart disease. There were very few reports by autopsy. And there were people who were chronicling what they were seeing at autopsy back then. And they would, the coronary arteries were clean. We started to mm. see this atherosclerosis and myocardial infarctions happening after 1900. And one of the points Chris Kenobi makes, that ophthalmologist, in his YouTube video, I think it's from an ancestral health form, is that there's a couple of candidate culprits for this, because there's a few things that have Mm -hmm. increased in our environment, specifically in our diet since then. One is sugar. Another is wheat, processed wheat. And for some people who are gluten sensitive, that could certainly be a, a problem. But the other thing is the seed oils. Right. And if you read like Nina Tycholes, who has that book called The Big Fat Surprise, she's done a very great job of this and pointing out that saturated fats are not the problem we thought they were, and that seed oils are. But Chris Kenobi thinks of all those candidates, it's the seed oils. And he thinks that that, and so have some others. And there's observational evidence through correlations that suggest this, but to show it definitively in a causal way, I want to get rid of that. Front, you'd need an interventional trial and you can't really do that. No, so the best right. you can do is, you know, you can look at time series for intakes of these things versus incidence of cancer and so forth. So he says, and there are a few doctors who are on board with this, that cancer is probably greatly influenced by the seed oils through an oxidation process, but also through this hyperphagia process that increases eating and obesity, and obesity hmm. is a big risk factor for cancer.
0: Yes, you know? and, and,
1: and so, you know, so this is something that I think that's a big possibility. For skin cancer, it could be sun exposure.
0: Right.
1: Um, for other environmental toxins, I mean, I've been concerned for a long time about there's a certain thing that's given to children that we are <laughs> not allowed to question. Yes. Um, without our license being taken away. Yeah. Um, But I think the jury um, is partially still out on some of those questions, but you're not allowed to talk about it. Um, But, you know, this relates to a few childhood conditions, including autoimmune disease and peanut allergies. Peanut allergies were very rare uh, when I was young, and now they're extremely common. My son has them, and probably half his class does. So, you know, and and there are people who speculate that at least there's a correlation between something that occurs in childhood and... (laughs) Yeah, no, we we'll,
0: we're that- happy to talk about that on our show. We don't put yeah. our show up on YouTube, but oh, you, I you don't want to. That's well, that, that's
1: so yeah. So I guess what I would say is, I'm still looking at the evidence. So right. the, one of the problems is the media attacks people who question anything having to do with vaccines, and there's right. we can get into this, particularly with the COVID vaccines, because there's certain yeah. things that are just unacceptable medically and scientifically that we're done with the COVID vaccines and and the propaganda surrounding them. But in general, for the childhood vaccines, there's no doubt that a safe, effective, and necessary vaccine is wonderful. But that presumes that it has to be safe and effective and necessary. And one of the issues with vaccines, particularly if they're going to be used as part of a bioweapon operation, which is the concern some of us have about COVID, is that you can have such a control over people's opinions over them because you don't want to have vaccine hesitancy that you suppress people through taking away their medical license uh, we just found out that the cdc withheld data two years worth of data on side effects from the covid vaccines because they didn't want vaccine hesitancy so in other words suppress the truth and 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 delete Whoa. people off twitter so that people will just go for it and and I'll tell you, go ahead.
0: I know you're an intellectual property lawyer, but just even, I mean, I went to law school and even just going to law school taught me enough about tort to know that if that were a corporation that did that, there would be lawsuits and they'd lose.
1: Absolutely. So you probably know that with the vaccines, we have two things that protect the companies from liability. One is the PrEP Act, which is for this, this pandemic and any kind of emergency, in which as long as vaccines are under an EUA, an emergency use authorization, the companies that are supplying them, as well as masks and anything else that's supplied by any company for health purposes during a pandemic uh, are immune from liability. So you can't sue them, it'll just be summarily dismissed. Um, And then apart from the emergency, for regular vaccines, anything on the childhood vaccine schedule is protected by the, I think it's 1987 act Uh, which is the Vaccine Compensation Injury Act, where you have to go to a vaccine injury court, which will pay you some damages from the government, but the companies are immune from liability. And this purportedly explains, and this is what Robert F. Kennedy Jr. says, I think he's right, why Pfizer's vaccine was approved, Comerati, but it hasn't been distributed yet. And it's because it's not yet approved for the childhood vaccine schedule, so they don't have liability. But as long as the EUA version is circulating, they have liability protection under the PrEP Act. So, yeah, so you're absolutely right. This is one thing, one area where it's kind of odd. I mean, you look at Twitter, for example, and any person who asks a question about things will often just get attacked by many people saying you're an anti-vaxxer or just go along with the program or you're, you're going to hurt your family. And, you know, they were telling children, if you don't want to kill grandma, you better wear your mask. You know, this kind of propaganda. And they say the same things.
2: They like send out lists of things to say to these activist groups and they all take to the mob of them takes social media. And so if you put in quotes and this works a lot of the time, some of the attacks that you see, and you just search that in Twitter in those quotes, you'll get a list of the exact same things by just dozens of people.
1: That's right, it's the same message. Like I just got out of the hospital and I almost died. Right. And thank God for the vaccine, it would have been worse. Yeah, there's a lot of that. It's um, It's so clear that it's propaganda and it's the use of bots and so forth. And it's scary because if this vaccine were 100% safe, effective and necessary, you wouldn't need that. Um, people would be lining up demanding it if it's gonna save their lives and those of their family and not have to be coerced. I mean. I have this essay on substack called 42 Yes 43. Yeah. That's Science what caught my COVID.
0: eye. I mean, I have so many notes on that. It's really okay. amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I mean that because I think it's a bioweapon too. And I was curious about what um how you could identify that. And specifically, I was interested. You know, you were talking about those these behaviors that are so strange. And I do think of it as like when people say, well, how can something like this be a setup? And I and I think the Manhattan Project, 100,000 people were involved in the Manhattan Project to make a nuclear bomb. And that's when they had all this secrecy stuff going on, like we're trying to save the world. You can't tell anybody. And I think there's a lot of that. I mean, it rises to the level of brainwashing. And I guess the the more information you get, the higher up you get. There must be a point at which you transition from just being a true believer and brainwashed to being either too deep into it or being you know it's almost like i think of how if you've ever heard about or read the book um by shea i think it is about the the masons like he was up to the 33rd degree mason whatever and up until that point they were still like oh this is all about god and then when he got into the room there were like three ex-presidents and a couple of like uh, mega church preachers. And they were like, we got news for you, buddy. And it's, t- it's a totally different ballgame. But by the time he had gotten to that level, they didn't want to, uh, they thought that he could handle that transition. And I almost feel like there has to be some kind of hierarchical pyramid like that. Because, I, I mean, when you think of all the people at every level of medicine, now, first of all, with medicine, if, if you, it was very clever act, actually to say uh, if you don't get the vaccine, you can't work here because they said it was to protect the people. But actually what that does is makes an apartheid of the mind. So I call it like the MK apartheid. It's like mind control apartheid. So that so that then if you go to the hospital and I know people have had to go to the hospital, they are super mean to you if you're not vaccinated and that you can't find anyone there who doesn't think that you're crazy because the, everyone who would sympathize with you has been fired.
1: It's outrageous. I know some nurses and some orderlies who think like that and they think you've got to have the vaccine because I got it and if you don't get it, you're, you're bad. And there are these people also in the media who say, if you don't get the vaccine, you should be starved or you should not get medical care, you shouldn't get a ventilator, including Andy Slavitt, who was Biden's first COVID czar before Jeff Zients. He was on Twitter and he deleted this, but people screenshotted it where he said, if you take have a fake vaccine passport, Do you expect to get a real ventilator when you go to the hospital? You know, you shouldn't get one. You should be allowed to, implying that you should die (laughs) gasping for air. And this is supposed to be the the COVID czar. So there's no compassion among these people, no understanding. And the doctors I know who are smart realize that the protection from the vaccine against transmission and infection is marginal and it declines. It was better with the Wuhan strain, the original one, but with Delta and Omicron, it's very poor. And we can get into the implications of that and whether it's gonna eventually cause other problems like ADE and so forth. But um, yeah, there's this, um, as far as the hierarchy is concerned, I've been thinking about this a lot as to who has operational knowledge of what's going on if this is a bioweapon operation. Clearly the people at various stages who are told, You've got to implement this on your population. We need to get 100% vaccination rate. Some of the leaders who are pushing this and, and saying you're going to be isolated, Jacinda Ardern of New Zealand, Dan Andrews of Victoria, Australia, Biden, um, you know, Macron, well, Trudeau. And then you
0: can see the ones who didn't go along with it, like the guy who runs Belarus. I mean, obviously yes, they had Schenker. other stuff yeah, yeah, going. And then so, Moise in Haiti had zero vaccination uptake and there's been a lot of African examples.
1: Yeah, so apparently people thought there were five African leaders who died because they weren't going along with. It. I, I read somewhere on Twitter and it's been deleted that there were actually eight. It's a very oh, small country. I
0: saw an actual research paper of fifty-three African leaders, and it said it was it was a cover up. It was like, why you know, isn't it weird that all these they weren't necessarily the presidents and stuff, but like even in in Haiti where they had almost no COVID deaths, weirdly people at the top died of covid, you know, like it was just a yeah. weird thing. And and the and the yeah. article I read didn't explain it very well, but they are acknowledging that there's an you know, a, a, significant, a statistically significant spike in African prominent African deaths.
1: Wow, I'd love to read that paper. That's yeah, really I can cool. find it. Mm-hmm. I, I tweeted about Lukashenko and wrote a little bit on Subsec about him. You know, what he said was he was approached by the IMF with a $940 million loan, Yeah, but it was contingent, and he needed it to pay off some debts, but it was contingent upon imposing a curfew, lockdowns, mandatory masks. This is the IMF. You know, they're not a medical body. Uh, apparently, they could work with the World Health Organization. But even when the World Health Organization was saying we shouldn't boost your children, we shouldn't, we don't need the masks. I mean, they had, in 2019, they had a um, a meta-analysis of 10 randomized trials showing no benefit to masking. But then they suddenly had to like change their tune. But Lukashenko said, no, we're not going to do this. And, you know, then he was threatened and everything. And so, yeah. and then it's, there it's were protests
0: to have him overthrown. I mean, it's so obvious yes. that this stuff works this way. Exactly. I mean, that's the thing that like, that's when like, um, it, there's just such a leap from... Like you're talking about research papers on specific medical issues and doctors and lawyers alike. And you're both are very precise about what you know and what you don't know, what you think, what you're working on. I mean, at at the really granular level, like the nitty gritty level, people are professionals um, are meticulous. And then, but when it comes to this big picture thing, this whole, I mean, I can, I can name five things that are just impossible to, to not to the, none of them are supported by the evidence at that level. So you can tell me all this stuff is evidential, but then you look at masks, the vaccines, the ventilators, remdesivir and COVID itself are five examples of things that I could have an intelligent, if I had some time to do some research, I know how to do some research I can read. If I had some time to do some research, I could make a very, I, I, I think, and I do re- research, I think that I've, I've, un, um, dis- I've disclosed the flaws in all five of the official narratives surrounding those issues. And yet there just is a, is a, a stupidity uh, in, in even those professions of especially medical profession where they just aren't acknowledging that. And I, I really can't get my mind around it. What is the control mechanism of that many people?
1: Yeah. So I know a lot of doctors who now think that this is a bioweapon operation, but they got the vaccine early and I've asked them why. And this includes Robert Malone. And it's because he believed at the time that the CDC was correct and accurate and reliable and that the vaccine companies were disclosing everything. This was around December, January, 2020, January, 2021. The vaccine rollout was early. I think Malone got his vaccines in, in March or April, but at that time he didn't really suspect what you know what we now see, which is the hiding of data, the fraudulent trials, um, some of the whistleblower accounts within Pfizer and Moderna, which we can get into, showing that these things were manufactured under like classified conditions where the windows were blacked out. And I got to talk to you about the Moderna engineers. This is a, a bombshell um, a disclosure, but they now think, including my partner in Florida, that, and he got the vaccine and he, he did okay, because it's it's in a way not harming everyone. I mean, you would never right, have a vaccine sure. that would, would harm everyone. Um, and right so there's away. issues about, if, well, exactly. So there's issues about long-term results of safety data, which they didn't have and still don't have. And they pushed it immediately on children and pregnant women who were never tested in the trials, this was- Neither were super the, old people. Right, exactly, exactly. So the indicia that I kind of try to assemble as to or how this is a bioweapon operation include these kinds of things. Um, if I could tell you something um I wanted to mention about if if a vaccine were designed, well, first of all, if you wanted to have a pandemic, that's a, a respiratory virus or something that spreads rapidly, And you wanted to use it not only to control a population with vaccine mandates and vaccine passports, which is a goal unto itself, right? So you can control movement, you can control social credit scores, who's gonna be able to go to the store, what they can buy, how much meat they can have with the Bill Gates agenda of cutting down on meat. All these things can be accomplished through vaccine passports and especially central bank digital currencies where you can have programmable money that expires or can only be spent on certain things. But apart from that, if you wanted to, to depopulate, as some people like Michael Yeadon think, and I think that's certainly possible and probable, you'd wanna do a couple things. One is you would need a vaccine program. And the reason is, you would not, if this were actually spreading like wildfire, you don't want the elites or the people who are in control of this to catch it and die. So you want a vaccine that's protective, safe and effective for them, but not necessarily for others. And you could have deaths and disability coming either through the virus or whatever pathogen you're using. And/or the vaccine. I'm not saying the vaccine, I gotta be careful here because of my license, I'm not saying the vaccines are a bioweapon. People can do research or, or read some of the things that I cite to make their own determination, but but you could, in in the abstract, in a bioweapon operation, affect death and disability, either through the virus or through the vaccine, but you'd wanna protect the vaccine for the elite. So here's here are the things, if you wanted to depopulate, here's what you'd want, there's three features of the vaccine you would want. One is you want it to be single target. You want it to only um, cause production, if you're gonna use messenger RNA or adenoviral DNA, production of one antigen, like in this case, the spike protein, not the whole virus, like we use for many vaccines, right. even the flu virus, there are whole virus vaccines for the flu, and they're um, bleached oh. and, and detergent made fractional viruses. And natural and, and immunity works like that. Well, natural immunity, yeah, that's a huge thing that has been neglected. And and, dear Van den Bosch writes wonderfully about how your own innate immunity is suppressed by vaccinal antibodies that are s specific. So once you get and there's this phenomenon of original antigenic sin which means once you're exposed to an antigen, either through a virus or a vaccine, and you're re-exposed to that virus, you will mount a response that recalls the antibodies you originally were programmed to make. Right. So in the case of the, getting the ve- spike protein vaccines, as you start moving toward another variant of COVID, like Omicron, when you get infected, you will recall your vaccinal antibodies from your memory B cells. And those may or may not be effective in warding off the infection. And it turns out with Omicron, it escapes both natural immunity because it's, it's mutations are very different from Delta and oh. from the original Wuhan strain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some people think it, it's common is two different. years old. Yeah. yeah. So it doesn't branch off in its lineage, directly from Delta, it goes back to a two-year-old common ancestor, and so some people think it was lab-designed. Robert Malone discussed this that it might be uh, designed as a vaccine by some people who wanted to quench COVID because it, once you get immune to Omicron, you actually have some immunity to Delta when Delta was raging, mm-hmm. but but there's a new variant of Omicron that's coming, called the BA two, and oh it's, really. Yes. So we, we just had the BA-1. The BA-2 is more pathogenic. And one thing we can talk about also is um, that the, the way these vaccines are designed, you're going to get more pathogenic variants. So so anyway, so you got single target. That's one goal of the vaccines right. if you want a bioweapon operation. And the reason for that is it allows easy immune escape. If you are immune to 10 different antigens in COVID, yeah. or the COVID virus, you're less likely to have that virus escape from your immunity than if you were to single target. So if you wanted to have this thing spread and make new variants, you'd make it single target. Number two, you'd want to administer it to everyone, which creates high immune pressure, during a pandemic, which creates high infectious pressure. And this allows rapid immune escape because you're constantly getting exposed to the virus if it's spreading in a pandemic. And you're constantly trying to mass vaccinate everyone so this virus is constantly being selected for to escape vaccine antibodies. And the third thing you'd want is, you'd want to design a vaccine that is antitoxin, meaning it suppresses illness. You know, it's, it's reducing the effects of the spike protein in this case. So you have fewer hospitalizations and deaths, that's what their claim to fame is, but they don't block infection or transmission. And what this does is, there's a really important paper by Gandong in 2001, out of the virology group at University of Edinburgh, which headed by Andrew Reed, he's now moved to University of Pennsylvania. But this showed through modeling that there are four types of vaccines that you can categorize them as. One's antitoxin, which reduces the toxicity you ex- feel from one of the pathogenic parts of the virus, or malaria in the case with, with what they were modeling. Anti-growth, so you prevent the pathogen from growing anti-infection, so you can't, if you're vaccinated, you don't get it. And anti-transmission, if you're vaccinated, you don't spread it to others. Turns out the COVID vaccines are very poor at blocking infection and transmission. But what they tell everyone is, hey, you'll reduce your hospitalization and death. You won't get as sick. Well, what Gandong found in this paper, very important, I think, I've written about it, is when you have that kind of vaccine, you will always eventually get a more lethal variant arising. And the reason is to select against lethality or virulence, you want something that would kill you before it can transmit. So if you want, if something's killing people and they don't transmit it, it's gonna die out. Right. So so viruses will tend to become less virulent as, over time. Right. But when you create a vaccine that suppresses the illness, it can evolve and become more lethal, but you don't feel it before you transmit it to an unvaccinated person. Wow, so care. keeping
0: it from being, so keeping the mild illness and the transmissibility and the infectiousness all um, status quo and just keeping those people who are like incubating that um, from getting super sick or dying or red flags going up just actually uh, keeps that, that reduced um, virulence over time from happening. Because in the beginning, th- there were two b- doctors from San Bernardino, I don't know if you remember, they yes. did like a 45 minute conference on like, this is how germs work, like, come on. And they said over time, it should get less infectious and or less virulent and more infectious, like it, it should be everywhere and not that big a deal. So when we started getting, uh, we got the Delta wave after people started getting vaccinated and I was fine for a year. I didn't care at all about anything. I didn't um, protect myself. I didn't care. I wanted to get it. I was like, I'll get it and then I'll be immune to it. I didn't realize it was absolutely artificial, which it feels artificial. Uh, But the first time I was in close contact with a vaccinated person, which was January of twenty twenty one, I got it. And so did the other people I was with. So we all got it that like two days later, because I remember thinking, oh, wow, you're vaccinated because it was new. And I thought, yikes, like, I'm not afraid of natural bugs, but I don't know what you got. And she had been sick from it. So, but they don't make you think that it's contagious then. but we all got sick from that. And that was, I've kind of felt it wasn't that bad. Like, I think when Binkley got it, Brad got it six months later, he was much sicker. And then the Omicron thing supposedly isn't as bad. But when I realized that the second wave was making people sicker, then I wondered, that seemed like something um, not natural might have happened. Right. I still, my so the smell
2: natural, is still off. It's still, still weird. Sick from it. Yeah.
1: yeah. It's horrific. I mean, that spike protein um, yeah. and the virus can migrate up the olfactory nerves into the brain. I have By to ask were, you
0: about viruses, but go ahead. Keep going.
1: Sure. So w- one thing about that is the gandong paper from 2001 says, when you have antitoxin vaccines that are not infection blocking, you will always get selection of or or reduce selection against more lethal variants. And, and they've they defined virulence as increasing mortality. So in their paper, virulence is equated to lethality. And that's from modeling. And, and it's particularly true when it goes to an unvaccinated person. But the problem is with this original antigenic sin phenomenon where you're getting a, a, a spike protein Uh, induction by this Wuhan strain vaccine, which they're still using from two years ago, that spike protein is pretty much no longer circulating, but your antibodies to it are gonna react um, poorly to viruses that have escaped immunity on their spike protein sequences from those original antibodies. And and importantly, there's, um, what we've seen is this. When the Wuhan spike protein vaccine came along, people had like 70% of their antibodies that were neutralizing. They were binding to the virus and they neutralize it. When Delta came along, it was much reduced. It was like 40%. And, th- and there were some papers saying, well, a smaller fraction of our antibodies that we're making from the old vaccine are neutralizing Delta. And the remaining antibodies that you make that can bind to the virus but not neutralize it could become enhancing of infection. They could, this is part of right. this vaccine-enhanced disease or antibody-dependent enhancement.
0: So that it connects and, to the spike protein, but it doesn't neutralize the virus. So it can deliver it into a yeah. cell.
1: Yeah. So there's a few types of vaccine-enhanced okay. disease. One is by suppressing immunity, and so you're more vulnerable to va- uh, viral-induced infection after the vaccine. We haven't apparently, according to the literature, we haven't really seen that yet. okay. Uh, we have seen suppression of, of natural immunity. Vandenbosch talks about this particularly in children, um, but we don't, haven't called it vaccine-enhanced disease yet. The antibody-dependent enhancement, which is a subtype of that, um, can occur in a couple of ways. One of the ways is the antibody does, you're right, it binds to the virus, doesn't neutralize it, but enhances the entry of the virus into cells or the binding of the virus to receptors. And one thing Geert Vanenbosch has said is we're going to expect to see with this large number of antibodies that are no longer neutralizing, we're going to see this thing bind to other receptors and get into the cell besides through ACE2 and besides through TMPRSS2. And we now see this. There's a paper, I think, in Nature from a few months ago showing that it's binding to sialic acid on the surface of the cell and getting into the cell that way. So th- these are ways that you could get antibody-dependent enhancement. So we
0: so what? What if you had it? I don't. I don't even know if I can consider myself having gotten it naturally because I think I got it from a vaccinated person. But would that be um, more like a uh, natural immunity? And would I be? Is is has this mutated so much that I should no longer consider myself having kind of a, any kind of immune protection from future variants at this point?
1: So you have the natural immunity, but no vaccination, or I'm not
0: vaccinated. Yeah. But but I acquired the illness from a vaccinated person, I think.
1: Right. So far as we know, infection from prior Delta does not make you totally immune to Omicron. But the Omicron disease is very much milder than was Delta. And with the new Omicron variant circulating, it might be that you could be susceptible to that as well, but your immunity from natural infection, because it's multivalent, you've got antibodies right, against right. nucleocapsid, envelope okay. protein, um, membrane proteins, spike protein. Got, it. got it. Whereas with a vaccine, you only have spike protein antibodies right. and some T cell response. It should be better. I think you're in a, well, you know, it's hard to <laughs> yeah, say. you because, don't have to
0: say, but anyway, and actually yeah. I think it was probably alpha because I was nowhere near as sick as the Delta people. I, um. I
1: well, think so, this uh, yeah, go,
0: you finish uh, what I you're was, gonna say, and then I, wanna, sure. I wanna break. Okay,
1: keep going. Oh, absolutely. I was gonna tell you. So those three goals of a vaccine that's aiming to produce evolution, of more virulent variants, you know, single target administered during a pandemic through mass vaccination of every last human on earth, and being antitoxic, but not infection or transmission blocking. And of course, no vaccine is completely infection blocking, but smallpox is an example of something, a vaccine that's very Highly sterilizing, meaning you really do stop infection and transmission virtually, which is
0: why we don't have it anymore. I have a smallpox scar. I have a vaccination scar. So, which is really, it really ages. Like, I don't even want to tell people that because you have to be really old to have a smallpox vaccine scar. But nobody has smallpox anymore and they don't give the vaccine.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And so, by the way, the only other single target vaccine we have, I mean, there's a couple, but one of the more, more common ones that most people get is hepatitis B. And that's not completely sterilizing, but it's single target, but it's not it, it, the reason you're not getting a lot of immune escape is it's not a pandemic type virus, you know, it's not spread that easily, it's spread through uh, sexual contact and, and IV drug use, you know, blood contact. So, you know, so so the three things that you wouldn't want in a vaccine, this is what they decided to go with, which is an indi- kind of an index of a pandemic. And, the other thing I was going to tell you about that vaccine was, well, I guess we'll get to it, but oh oh yeah, what, what, what's strange is when this thing broke, all four vaccine companies decided to go within hours of seeing the Chinese post the viral RNA sequence on the internet with a single target vaccine encoding mm-hmm. the full length spike protein. And Fauci brags about this, you know, within you know 60 days, we had an EUA for yeah. the first vaccine, 60 days of the Chinese posting it on the internet. And there's another, there's a, a Good Morning Britain uh, podcast or, um, video of a vaccine executive saying, we had our vaccine moving to production within three or four hours of seeing the sequence posted on the internet. Well, one would ask, why don't you look at the whole link of the spike protein and ask, are there any dangerous epitopes, any regions that you shouldn't use? Nobody apparently asked that among these four companies and other companies that are building such a spike protein vaccine. One thing Sorensen pointed out is that 78% of the sequence of the spike protein is identical to human proteins. And the problem is, th- this can do two things. It can provide stealth because when it gets in, your body doesn't react against the human like okay. components, so it can get in and not be, you know, evaded immunity for a while. But the other problem is, when you start to make antibodies to particular regions that overlap between the foreign region and the human region, it can induce autoimmunity. Autoimmune. That's the and, first thing I thought. Yeah. Yes. So, so no one thought, hey, let's look for the regions that cause clots. Let's look for the regions that cause endothelitis, inflammation of the blood vessels. Let's look for the regions that might cause autoimmunity. Let's strip it down and remove the dangerous epitopes. And there's several scientific papers where people are saying, hey, if this ends up hurting people, you better go back and take out those parts of the spike protein that are not good. But these companies are all bragging, we went for the full-length spike protein within hours. Wow. It's bizarre. This is
0: so. There's like four things I want to ask you about, and I'm wondering if, so we've been chatting for an hour, and I'd like to do a little bonus segment if you have a little more time. So I want to ask you in that bonus section, I want to talk about hepatitis, about the HIV-AIDS connection, about viral theory in general, and I also want to ask you why, um, well, I want to tell you that I think Novavax was slow-walked, and I want to see what you have to say about that, because that's a protein subunit and not a uh gene therapy type drug. Uh so if you're okay with those questions, then maybe we break here, Brad, sure. and yeah. and then we just continue on after.
2: And I want to ask Brad. about applications of gene therapy. Sure. All right. Yeah. So let's okay. go. To yeah, all. let's break right here. So thank you guys for watching. You guys can okay. find us at com. We do a daily news show. You probably know that if you're watching this, where can people go to to find
1: you? Oh yeah. Oh so I have a sub stack at Hill MD substack.com and that's pretty much it because my twitter was taken down
0: oh, i'm sure it was a, a marvelous and much needed source of information but anyway maybe you'll expand after that i bet people want to talk to you so maybe you'll have to move into podcasting but um oh and maybe i'll ask you what you think of dr cowan okay let's take a break and we'll see y'all on the other side